Our passage this evening is Philippians 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, Turn with me now there, if you don't mind. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. Technically, this is an extended meditation on the second half of verse 8, but for the sake of context, we're going to read verses 3 to 8 and then pray. So this is the word of the Lord, Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we meditate tonight on this surprisingly rich sentence, just I pray that you would open up hearts, that we would all be receptive to your word, that we would all be careful and cautious to understand it rightly, to apply it rightly, that we would be more than willing, Lord, to see the, the riches and the, the, the glory of your word tonight as we dig into this together. In Jesus' holy name, amen. All right, so to orient everyone to what is happening ultimately in the book of Philippians, I want you to imagine that you are going to go on a pretty hefty short-term mission trip. And this is not a uh, construction project in Mexico mission trip. This is a mission trip where you're going to go plant churches in a place where Christ has never been named. RCG is one of several churches that is going to send you out and support you. And so you go out and you begin preaching the gospel. Unfortunately, at some point in time on that trip, you run afoul of the authorities and you are arrested and thrown in prison for the offense of preaching Jesus Christ. This is not a first world prison. Conditions are harsh. Uh, You are in a bad place in every sense. You have no idea if you are going to be allowed to leave or if you are ultimately going to be put to death There's no guaranteed certainty in front of you. Now, we at RCG here, of course, hear about this. We are grieved, and in addition to praying, we take up an offering, and we decide to send someone, a delegate, out to you while you're languishing in prison. This delegate takes a gift. Um, Who knows what they bring? Maybe a pen and paper for you to be able to to write and correspond, maybe something to read, maybe some weather-appropriate clothes, food, maybe a bit of money, something along those lines. And a delegate from here goes to where you're at, wherever you are in the world, and provides you with these gifts. And this person stays with you. They visit you often. they, They pray with you. They encourage you. They tell you about what's going on at home. They're giving you a sort of lifeline to things generally going on back at RCG. Now, 
If this was really you, I would imagine, like I would, that you would be grateful to this delegate. You would be grateful to RCG. You would probably remember this church fondly and with love. You would miss us. You spent some time with us, obviously, earlier. Um, And since you have an abundance of time on your hands, you'd probably spend some extended time praying for yourself, for your loved ones, but also for the churches that are supporting you. And in addition to that, I would imagine, I probably would do the same thing, that if you were in the situation, since you have writing materials and an abundance of time, you'd probably correspond a little bit. You'd write a note, at least a thank you note, to this church that sent a delegate to you to support you while you were in prison. And if you can imagine that, brothers and sisters, that's essentially what's happening in the book of Philippians. This book is not written like many of other Paul's epistles because Paul is writing to a church that's having doctrinal or behavioral issues. This is a church that was not enduring a trial. It was Paul himself who was enduring a trial. Paul was the one doing the enduring. This church supported him, and the book of Philippians can be characterized as an apostolic thank you note to this church. And in verses 3 to 7 that we just read, Paul tells the church that he prays for them often, that he is joyously thinking about them, um, and the times that uh, they partnered with him in ministry, and he expresses confidence in God's saving work in their lives. He tells them that he loves them, and then in keeping with that, when we get to verse 8, he tells them that he misses them, that he longs to see them. In a sense, that's really what verse is. It's Paul sitting in a jail cell telling this church that he yearns to be with them. He misses this church and he wants to be with them. But the reason why we're going to linger on verse 8 tonight is because in the way that Paul pens verse 8, I think he unpacks before us a theology that is worth considering. He he unpacks before us a theology of grace and glory of a life that is entirely dependent on Jesus and seeks above all else for others to see and glorify their Savior. So for the majority of our time tonight, we are going to meditate on Paul's words and what they mean, and ultimately see this this theology of Jesus, of grace, and glory. To do that, we're going to do four things. First and foremost, we're just going to spend a little bit of time, so we're all on the same page as to what verse 8 actually means, and so you're not taking my word for it. But after that, hopefully after that, we will all see that there is a a deep theology behind what Paul pens in verse 8. And I think we can summarize again that theology as Jesus, grace, and glory. We're going to see that Paul recognized that it really is all about Jesus all of the time. We're going to see that Paul had a view of life and ministry that is entirely dependent on God's grace. And we're going to see that Paul gives glory to God alone and no one else. So again, verse 8 tonight will be our extended medication. We will see in there a theology of Jesus, grace, and glory. But, as I said, to do that, we should really begin by explaining what verse 8 is and and how that relates. So, verse 8 is a pretty simple verse, as I said. The what of it is pretty clear. Again, this is Paul yearning to see this church. This is the language of someone who misses a loved one. It's pretty simple. But notice... Paul does not say in that verse, I yearn for you with all my heart or all my affection or all my love. It's not how Paul frames it. He actually says, I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. 
If you have a, a footnote in your Bible, you may, depending on the translation. Um, it may say more literally, the word there is the inward parts. In other words, uh, you, this could be rendered uh, that Paul yearns for them with the inward parts of Christ Jesus. If you're sitting here with the King James Bible, it would say, I yearn for you with the bowels of Christ Jesus. Um, that word really refers back to, you know, not so much a particular organ, but the source of one's affections, the source of one's feelings. If we were to modernize this, we would use the word heart. We would say something like, um, I love you with all my heart. In other words, you could reasonably translate verse 8 if you wanted to modernize it to, I yearn for you with Jesus's whole heart. And if that sounds odd, good, it should. I think that's the point. I think Paul is framing it this way because we're supposed to stop and take notice of what he's saying. Paul is saying something rather profound here. And it's important because the way Paul constructs the sentence, he's not saying, he's not saying that he loves this church with a love that is similar to Jesus's. He's not saying that uh, merely that Jesus put uh, the love that he has for this church in his heart, although that is a true sentence. Paul is saying something a bit more profound and a bit further. He's saying that the love he has is actually Jesus's love. That's what the construction in verse 8 is referring to. In other words, Paul loves this church. Paul misses this church. Paul yearns for this church. They have experienced Paul's love in action. But Paul is saying in this verse, he wants this church to know that the affection that he feels for them, the affection that they felt, the affection that they experienced is Jesus's love manifested in Paul. If we were going to completely reframe it, we could say that Jesus is the one loving this church through Paul. Jesus is the one loving this church through Paul. And that's why I say in these little words, Paul is pointing us to several key uh, theological implications. Um, he's, he's pointing us to a, 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 a deeper uh, a reality beyond simply telling this church that he misses them. In the way he pens verse 8, we see Jesus' grace and glory. The what in verse 8 is a simple statement of longing, it's, but, but in how he writes it, G, Paul is pointing this church back to Jesus. He wants this church to always focus on Jesus, to live dependently on God's grace and everything, and as a result, to give God the glory in everything. And so if we're going to unpack that theology tonight, we need to begin where Paul does with Jesus. Now, as we, as we look at these, these three aspects or implications of Paul's theology here, the first thing that we need to see is that Paul is a man who deeply, passionately believed that it's all about Jesus. For Paul, everything is Christ. And I'd invite you all at some point in time to read through the book of Philippians on your own and see if you come to a different conclusion. I'd be heartily surprised if you did. But to give and highlight a few examples, in this chapter alone, in chapter 1, in verse 20, Paul will say that he wants Jesus, quote, now as always, to be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. In other words, Paul is happy to die if Jesus is glorified. He goes a step further in verse 23. There, Paul says that while he is torn between living and dying in terms of, you know, what he'd rather, um, or uh, he, he actually says he would personally prefer to die. He's torn, but he, if he had to pick, he would prefer to die because to do so is to get to go and be with Jesus. Jesus is everything to Paul, which is literally what Paul says in verse 21, where he sums up the entire focus of his life, saying to live is Christ. 
Jesus is everything to Paul, and that's exactly how it's supposed to be. And so as a faithful servant of Jesus, as a faithful apostle, Paul wants everyone to love Jesus, to focus on Jesus, and to yearn for Jesus as much as he did. Which is why, in verse 8, Paul is making it a point to draw the church's attention to their Savior. Again, this church knew that Paul loved them. They saw the fruit of his love in his prayers, his encouragement, his teaching, his presence, his letters, and they clearly loved him in return. But Paul wanted them to know that every ounce of feeling, every bit of a fruit of affection, every minute of prayer, every spoken word, every stroke of the pen was ultimately Jesus loving them. Paul is telling the church in verse 8 that when they look at him and they see his rather tireless efforts, his constant worry or anxiety for the churches that he mentions in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, and his painful, painful personal sacrifices on their behalf. And when they look at those things, what they should really be seeing is the great shepherd loving his flock. They should see Jesus's smiling face. Now, ultimately, why? Well, because Paul knows that we tend to love those who love us. We tend to have affection for those who have affection for us. And so Paul feels it's quite important to make sure that those believers have the right lover in their sights. It's, it's almost as if verse 8, Paul is saying, look, church at Philippi, when you are loved in the church or by me, see Jesus. Let whatever comfort or joy or encouragement you experience, in any of that, put your affection to where it really belongs, your Savior. Paul wants these believers to quote Second uh, Corinthians eleven three, to have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Jesus is everything to Paul as he should be. And Paul points the church at Philippi back to where their eyes and hearts belong, on Jesus all of the time. Keeping our eyes on Jesus is essential for our faith. It's essential for our sanctification. It's essential for our happiness. It's essential for our own love for others. And Paul does not want us to miss an opportunity to rejoice and grow in our love and appreciation for our Savior in response to his love for us. Which means, brothers and sisters, as we love one another today at River City Grace, just by way of application, may we also see that our love for one another is no less the manifestation of Jesus' love for his elect. When our pastors pour out their time and energy for our good, let us see that it is the love of Jesus that's on display. When our deacons and various helpers and volunteers show up early and tirelessly work behind the scenes to make every gathering and function work smoothly, Let us see Jesus' love on display. When we find out that a brother or sister has been praying for us or offers us a timely word of encouragement or exhortation or rebuke, let us see that as the love of Jesus uh, on display. At River City Grace, like at Philippi, we need to see that Jesus is ultimately the one loving us. When Greg Stover counsel me or we have 30 people show up to our house to help us move or someone invites us over for dinner, Ultimately, and without ignoring or minimizing Greg or those 30 people or that hospitable person or couple, ultimately, we should see Jesus. We should see our Savior's smiling face. Ultimately, these acts of love and grace to one another should point us back, should cause us to rejoice, should cause us to be grateful and exult in our Savior. In a healthy church, there is an abundance of love for one another, and in a healthy church, every act of love will ultimately drive that congregation to delight in their Savior all the more, because it really is all 
about Jesus. Now, if everything I just said is true, then that means as we love others, humility should mark our love. Humility and appreciation to God should mark our lives as we love one another. Why? Because if our love is a manifestation of Jesus' love for us, then our own love does not ultimately come from you or I. It is a gift. It is a gift that is all from grace, which brings us to the second aspect, the second implication of Paul's theology on display, a dependence upon grace. Now, if we said that uh, a focus on Jesus was the the first aspect of Paul's theology on display in verse 8, then a dependence upon the grace worked by a sovereign God is the second. God's sovereign grace is itself uh, another major theme in the book of Philippians, um, and it's writ large over the the passage that we read in verses 3 through 8. In verse 3, Paul begins the letter by telling the church that he thanks God, which means he believes God is the one responsible, for the church's partnership in gospel ministry. In verse 6, Paul attributes the entirety of their salvation to God. God saves. It's his work, even the repentance and faith that he requires of us. He started it. He will complete it. In verse 7, Paul summarizes and says that everything that the church has done to support him in his imprisonment and his own receiving of that support is an expression of God's grace. In other words, Paul views that God supplied Paul through the church. Later on, in probably one of the most cited uh, bits of the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul tells the church to work out or bring to completion their salvation and to do so with fear and trembling, which is less terror and more awe and reverence. But in verse 13, he tells them the reason why their efforts, real efforts to fight sin and unbelief, should be attended by awe and reverence. And that is namely because God is the one producing in them the working and the willing. In other words, as the church fought against sin and unbelief, as they loved and worshipped, they needed to understand their feelings, desires, and actions are ultimately produced by God and thus conduct themselves in a humble and grateful way in awe of their gracious and sovereign Lord. If devotion to Jesus is a focus in the book of Philippians, so too is the fact that God is sovereign and every good gift come from him. Paul makes clear that if we're doing something good, it is our sovereign father graciously working through us. And what Paul says in verse 8 is, therefore, consistent, entirely consistent with that thinking. If, again, Paul's love is the manifestation of Jesus' love, then Paul's love for the Philippians is by implication owing to God's grace. It is a gift. It is not ultimately of Paul. He is God's instrument, but he is nonetheless still an instrument. And like every good vessel or instrument or intermediary, he does his job and points back to the one that he is serving. By, by way of silly analogy, imagine you had a, a really rich uncle and he decided that he wanted to buy you a car. And in order to do that, he decided to facilitate that purchase by giving the money to someone else in your life. It's going to be a surprise. So it could be a parent, it could be a brother, it doesn't matter. Just imagine uncle gives somebody in your life money to buy you a car. In that particular case, whoever is, is buying you the car is, is facilitating your uncle's gift. They should spend that money as instructed. They should be careful not to insert their preferences or wishes uh, on your receipt of the gift. And at all times, they should point back to your uncle 
uh, when it comes to praise and thankfulness. And they should probably encourage you to reach out to them, call them, thank them, that sort of thing. And Paul knows this. That's why in verse 8, he's being a good facilitator of God's gift. He is directing this church's affection towards Jesus, which we saw in our first point. But he's also, by implication, reinforcing this theology of grace. Paul wants this church to see the reality of our utter dependence on the grace that flows through a sovereign God. And that matters because, and this will be our third point, glory is at stake. Or to borrow the analogy from the rich uncle, the one to thank is at stake. This matters because glory is at stake, and that is our third point this evening. The third central aspect of Paul's theology that we see in verse 8 is that of glory. Paul's theology gives all glory to God and to no one else. Now, again, kind of beating this horse a little bit, God, Paul wants the church to see that his love is really the manifestation of Jesus' love. And why does he want that is because glory, again, is at stake. Now, Paul could have, let's be clear about this, Paul could have legitimately said, I yearn for you with all of my heart. He could have. That would have been an honest and accurate statement. Uh, It was, after all, a love that he sincerely felt. It was a love that guided him, motivated him, drove him. I I yearn for you with all of my heart would have been Accurate. And to give you another example, turn over to First uh, Thessalonians chapter two. First Thessalonians chapter two, uh, specifically verses seven to eight. In uh, in that passage in First Thessalonians two seven to eight, Paul is reminding uh, that church about his time amongst them, and there he says that we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So this is a a picture of someone who who deeply loves this body that he is preaching to. He's willing to give up himself entirely to them out of affection for them. These aren't empty words. These are, these are real feelings that, that Paul felt. Um, and so when, when, when Paul is, is writing you know, the, the letter to the, the, Thess- the, Thess- yeah, the Thessalonians or this, the, the, the church at Philippi, it would be entirely accurate for Paul to say that I yearn for you with all of my heart. But he doesn't say, that way, say it that way. He points them back to Jesus, and in doing so, he points them back to grace. He wants them to see that his love and all of its fruit, the hours of prayer, the tears, the exhortations, any of the letters that he may have sent, his whole ministry to them, he wants them to see this as a gift from God to them through him. Because whoever is responsible for the good thing gets the credit for the good thing. Who's responsible for the good thing gets the credit for the good thing. By, by way of analogy, my, my daughter Reagan just turned nine. We, we took her to a water park on Friday. A good time was, was, was had by all. Um, now, who gets the credit for that? Is it, is it my next door neighbor? No, of course not, right? I mean, it, it'd be inappropriate if you think anybody other than her parents. We were the ones who came up with the idea. It was, it was uh, our money, our time. She should be thanking for us, thanking us. The source of the gift gets the glory, and the Lord does not share his. Tim began our time by reading Isaiah 42, and interestingly enough, in that verse 8, the Lord says, my glory I do not give 
to another. Look, we are, and Paul knows at the time of writing this book, that we're, we're idolaters by nature. We have this remarkable tendency to pervert and pollute even simple things, like the giving of gifts and the expressing of gratitude. And Paul does not want this church because of these same truth-suppressing, God-denying tendencies to be tempted to put their affections on the human being through whom God's grace flowed. So Paul proactively addresses that here. He is laboring to them through Jesus' love, worked in Paul as a gift to the glory of God. Paul is the instrument through which Jesus loves his bride, and Paul wants the Philippians to never lose sight of that. He wants God in all of this to get the glory. God, after all, deserves the glory when this church reflects on the manifestations of Paul's love to him, his, his frequent and zealous prayer, encouragement, letters, time. God gets the glory for all of that. God deserves the glory for this church's support of Paul. They're sending Epaphroditus to him with support, encouragement, and supplies. God gets the glory for that as well. And God gets the glory for this whole exchange and this resultant letter and the 2,000 years of encouragement that we have all experienced through this book as a result of this interaction between Paul and this church. God gets the glory for all of it. And Paul, in verse 8, is helping remind the church of Philippi and therefore us of that fact. Now, brothers and sisters, by way of brief summary, I hope we can all agree this little throwaway sentence. And I say that because I cannot tell you how many times I read this book and how many times I've glossed over this verse and said, okay, Paul misses them. Great. But this, this little throwaway sentence in verse eight is absolutely worthy of thought and meditation. In it, we see Paul's desire that this church whom he loves and who loves him never fails to keep their eyes where they ultimately belong on Jesus Christ. He wants them to see and savor Jesus as the giver of every good gift so that their affection will grow for their Savior and so that God will get the glory. That's the beauty and, 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 and the wonder of the theology behind what Paul is saying in verse 8. Now, as we draw our time together tonight to a close, I would like to end with just two basic words of exhortation. And first, let me suggest that the same ethic that we see in verse 8 become an understanding and an attitude that governs how we see our own lives and ministry, whatever that looks like here at RCG. If we experience love in the church, may we, may we not gloss over or ignore the, the human vessel that God is using. May we not just completely ignore one another. But may we also never fail to see Jesus' smiling face through the relationships and the the goodness that we have between one another in this congregation. And when we do love others and when that love overflows in fruit, may we see that our love is a gift of God, that we ourselves are the very hands and feet of Jesus. And as such, as we do that, may we love humbly in a way that gives glory to God. Now, second, in a few minutes, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out that this ethic of Jesus, grace, and glory is on fullest display in the Lord's Supper. 
In the bread and the cup, we are reminded of the centrality, necessity, and beauty of Jesus, our Savior, as he ascended the cross as the perfect substitute who stood in our place. We are reminded of the utter majesty and endless scope of the grace of God as Jesus died for those who were dead in their trespasses, who were enemies of God, and who loved the darkness and sin and refused to come to the light. And we're reminded of the the glory of God, for through the cross, not only was our salvation secured, but the full character of God seen and on display more clearly than has ever been seen before or will ever be seen after. On that terrible night, the, the holiness and justice of God are perfectly and harmoniously commingled with his love and mercy. We see Jesus, we see grace, and we see glory in the cross, and that's what we'll be celebrating tonight. And so as we eat and as we drink, let us imitate Paul and do so with a theology uh, that is focused on our Savior, that is dependent on grace, and seeks to glorify him in everything. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the magnificence of how you have orchestrated history for the good of your church and for us. We, we thank you, Lord, that we are recipients of this book. We thank you f- that we are recipients of, of, of the grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. May our hearts tonight and tomorrow and for as long as we're on this earth just never fail to see and savor our Savior. May we live lives that are truly truly humbly and, 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 and gratefully uh, dependent on the grace that you provide us in Christ. And may we never fail to live for your glory. May we never make the mistake of making it about us, but may we turn our, our Jesus focus and our grace dependence to where it belongs, praising your name. And we ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.